0: I'm Rick Ralph and thanks for joining me, talking Garbology, Waste and Recycling Unwrapped. As an industry professional with more than 40 years experience, both internationally and in Australia, my podcast series provides listeners an insight to and conversations with a number of key industry leaders, subject professionals, knowledge experts, on a wide range of topics waste and recycling related. Wherever you may be listening, I trust you find my program informative, as we explore and unbundle the complex yet interesting subjects of waste management, secondary resource recovery, recycling and all their endeavours. And welcome. And uh, in this podcast uh, that we're going to have today, I'm actually going to be talking about the China national sword, what it means and uh, uh, what it's actually uh, means for Australia and where we've landed. And I've got in the uh, studio with me um, Nick from Equilibrium. Welcome, Nick. Thank you, Rick. Um, before we get on to uh, the China national sword and a bit of a background there, Pat, tell us about Equilibrium, mate.
1: Ah, we're a Melbourne-based but nationally operating environmental consulting company. Uh, we work across a range of technical areas uh, across energy, uh, carbon accounting and greenhouse emissions and environmental management systems. But we also work quite a bit in the waste and recycling area. Um, and that's primarily because of my background. Uh, I've worked in the industry for about 10 years. And prior to working in the industry, I actually worked in government um, as an advisor to various ministers. So I uh, worked in environment and waste policy. So, um, yeah, we're fortunate. We do some really interesting work in terms of uh, what's going on with resource recovery uh, at the coalface with things like curbside recycling, but also more strategically with things like product stewardship programs. Yep. So it's interesting work.
0: The buzzword of uh, every state government, product yeah. stewardship, absolutely. <laughs> well, 12 months ago, Australians were woken to the, uh, the definition or the terminology in the media of uh, the China national sword policy. And I think to put a bit of background to it, um, this was to many came as a shock, but to those within the industry, we saw it coming for a long time. That would be a fair, fair assumption, wouldn't it, mate?
1: Yep, I would agree.
0: Yeah. And I think what it is, is um, the background to this, and we'll get into a bit about it, but we need to put into context the Australian market and recycling. And we need to put into context what our capability and our capacities are for these products and where we ended up and where we landed to, to go. But effectively, um, in September 2017, the signals were sent. In fact, I think it was earlier that about 16 when they started their green fence policy, the signals were sent that they were going to become self-sufficient to probably up to about 70%. They did some trials. They used tariffs to to change the market conditions and the trading conditions. And then, um, as of uh, early last year, the sword actually came down. Mm. Um, what they said they were going to do, they did. They did. And uh, every, the world was coming to an end and uh, recycling was going to fall over and and we're out. From my perspective, I think it's the best thing that happened because it caused us an internal rethink and to get smarter and mm. clever about it. But a bit of background, mate. Um what is the capability or the capacity of the Australian market? How do we end up getting to where we got So we were so reliant on the export space?
1: On the export market? Well, in many respects, it's a good story because going back to the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, particularly in households and, and curbside recycling, Australia went through a lot of innovation and investment. That's when we moved into having um, uh, commingled bins or split bins and then commingled bins across all households. Uh, it's when Australia's participation in curbside recycling started to get up towards the 90%, you know, because thinking back to the late 90s, not every household actually had recycling. So, no. so what we saw was a, um, a really good program in that there was an increase in the amount of material that was being recovered. Um, also, you know, Australia has gone through a significant um, economic, you know, purple patch. So we've had an economy that's been consuming lots of materials all through those last, you know, 10, 15 years. So so that's really led to an increase of consumption and an increase of recyclables being available to be recycled. But it's coincided with the time when a lot of our manufacturing activities have, have declined or changed because yeah. of globalisation. So it's, it's meant that with some of the materials in the curbside recycling, uh, paper and plastics in particular, uh, we have more than we can actually recycle in Australia. Simply, we collect more than we can actually use.
0: Supply exceeds demand in that space
1: domestically. Correct. Domestically, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and yeah. you know, and paper is a very good example because we've seen the massive rise in consumption of paper in China, and that the the number of paper mills that have been built in China in the last uh, fifteen years is is phenomenal. Um, so, so that's why China, for such a long period, was actually uh, drawing that paper in. They were demanding that to feed their paper mills, um, and it was it was good, you know, while it lasted in Australia because it was a strong market, it was a consistent market. Um, but as you say, now that China has taken a different policy position, and, and it was actually 2013, Rick was, was it? the first time they flagged it, 2013. Yeah. Um, And so we knew it was coming. Um, But now that they've taken a different position and they've evolved economically, we have to respond.
0: Yeah. Uh, So what sort of numbers have sort of been typically exported versus uh, what we've actually managed to consume internally versus the export and the demands?
1: Yep. Um, Well, in in paper, which is the largest amount of material in curbside and and, uh, recycling generally, there's a, a net export of about 1.5 million tonnes of paper a year. Wow. So we collect about 1.5 million tonnes more than we need or can consume locally.
0: So we're pretty good recyclers then. We're doing the right bit. But I, I yeah. guess the issue is that'll supply... To, and what about glass and plastics, mate?
1: Well, glass is a little bit different because glass generally isn't exported. There's only yeah. a very small amount that that's exported. Um and in the glass market, Australia's consumption of recovered bottles um, had been tied to our local production of bottles. Mm-hmm. And the production of bottles and other glass packaging in Australia has been very steady for many years. So, so we're really collecting more than we can use in the traditional recycling method. Um, and that's why there's been a lot of interest in putting glass into road base or using it as some aggregate or some other um, secondary use. And those those markets are starting to develop quite you know quite well these days. Um, with plastics, it's a, it's a similar story that just in terms of the demand locally for recovered plastics to make new products, and generally the recovered plastics isn't of a quality that can go back into a food grade product. That's a very um, you know highly technical and and very um, cost intensive activity to do. So a lot of the plastics is. Uh, similar to paper, um, just going offshore.
0: Yeah, and I think um, this is where the opportunity sort of arises when you actually have a look at it because it wasn't until we got the jolt and everyone started to have a look at it because we've tended to take curbside recycling very much as business as usual, we've tended to throw anything that looked possibly recyclable into that bin. There has been confusion, and there is general confusion, I think in the the general populace is what is a recyclable plastic? when I do my uh, Media chats, you know, that I keep getting asked um, yep. one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and even I get confused on strawberry punnets at times. Yep. So, you know, uh, it, it, there is a challenge in this internally to actually, because I think Australians are good at recycling or recovering material, but we're very, very poor at actually using that exactly. or creating it. Would that be yeah. fair, Call
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Uh, definitely, Rick, that's a big part of it. But I think also the the fundamental structural flaw that's been exposed with curbside recycling is that when your household bin is first collected, it goes to a material recovery facility who, who sorts it out. It's that facility that contracts with the council and, and the contract is based on the value that they can get out of the different products that they sort out and then sell. So basically they're commodity traders. Yeah. Um, they're not recyclers. And, and that's the missing link is that this is exposed that um, – councils are not actually paying for recycling. They're paying a commodity trader to try and sort this out and on-sell it at the cheapest way possible. So unless we start to look at it that the contracts need to be changed, perhaps government needs to step in and underwrite some of these activities. Shared risk,
0: shared, shared, shared upside, risk. downside yeah. in the process here. And I think, you know, I think when we have a look at the beginning of the curbside recycling, originally it started with the bag system. Um, and I think it was back in the ninety and the eighties when I did the first trial. And uh, we, we used to have a bag that was the bottle merchants would put their beer bottles in it. We put mm. some newspapers in it. Um, we used to put the old plastic container. But the whole system as packaging has changed. The recycling system hasn't has, hasn't really adapted to all those changes.
1: Yeah, yeah, that, and that, that's another very important point to keep in mind is that um, the means of production and the globalisation of of production has really changed the way that we consume.
0: Yeah.
1: And so, you know, people receive things much more packaged um, and therefore, you know, want to dispose of that and we provide the systems for them to dispose of that. But there's shown to be a, a, a little bit of a friction in, in the system.
0: So... The definition China sword, what do you, where do you think that arose from, the national the definition? Was it just the cutting of the umbilical cord, do you think, ah, of the, the process? Um,
1: I, I don't know. It was part of a bigger policy announcement, which was called Blue Sky. Right. Um, and I think, as you said at the start, China's ambition is genuinely to improve their environmental performance in, in a number of ways, air quality, energy consumption, in a number of ways, and, and waste and the sword is one of them. So yeah, maybe cutting the sword, maybe. Um,
0: you wouldn't know it would be. It's just probably one of those things. Myths became fact after time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, because it was the green fence, and where they t- played fence. around with the with the tariffs and other yeah. stuff there. I think yeah. um, with with that, but with what has cascaded, it's not just about China, is it? It's about Asia because the whole it's caused a system change and a rethink of actually quality. Yep. If you, it's the old story, if you've got quality and recycle it, you can get rid of it every day of the week. Yep. But if you're selling or you're producing material that is off spec, you're in a world of hurt.
1: Yep. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, And, of course, this this is not just Australia's problem. Um, You know, this uh, change in China has has affected the United States more than it has affected Australia. Um, The US, I think, uh, was exporting about 19 million tonnes of paper to China up until Mm. the China Sword And so they've responded very quickly and it's been interesting to watch the United States because what they've done is actually invest in better technology, systems and labour to get to the quality and the specification that the market now demands. Um, Australia's been slower to try and make that move.
0: And I think this is where we've sort of, to some degree, I think the Australian in in the manufacturing, not the manufacturing sector, the remanufacturing, the recycling, we've got a head in the sand a bit. We talk, we do a lot of talk about potential markets but the rubber has not hit the road. You know, you look at the challenges we've now got with uh, glass, for instance, across the eastern seaboard and with the container deposit, we've got a higher quality glass, but that's left the material that is off spec and yet there's some very simple solutions Australians could be actually doing with that glass or, or government led by government.
1: You, you mean like using it in road base? Yeah, all or those, those sorts of things. Lower, yeah, you're absolutely right again. Um, I, I did notice just this week there's a plant that's opened up that has the capacity to process 100 million bottles a week to put it back into low-grade applications, so I think we're starting to see some of that investment in infrastructure mm. happen. And mm. and I know that there are people looking for it. But um, going back to the point that the material recovery facility is the initial place where the material goes before it is available to be made into something else, I think that's still a blockage for us because in paper, I mentioned before that we still were a net exporter of paper. Um, you know there is interest from companies to potentially start new paper manufacturing operations in Australia, um, but they need to secure six or seven hundred thousand tons of paper to make that operation viable.
0: It has to be sustainable over the long term. They need it for a twenty, thirty year period.
1: Well, for a long period, exactly yeah. right. Yeah. You know because these are you know close to a billion plus dollar investment, and in the current arrangement, they can't secure that supply, so they can't make. They don't have the security to make that investment, which would enable that local production to happen.
0: And I, I do think part of it is it comes down. We always say government, 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 but I think there is a um, there is a real place for government to take some leadership at all levels—federal, state, and local—in um, actually using recycled content or having creating that initial pull as part of it. I mean, we, we, in one of my future podcasts, we talk about organics, and you know, I think every local government in Australia and state government varies. Do all this. Composting and green waste and mulching, but they use very little of it. And the same thing in the in the domestic recycling space. You know, we don't. We tend to still use a lot of virgin plastics. We're not tending to actually start to think more laterally about the, the problem plastics like the PVCs and uh, uh, the polypropylenes.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's an area where you probably would have seen. You know, there some of the recyclers and some of the recycling industry is, is trying to push that point and and make government realise that they're a significant purchaser of products. And if they could be specifying recycled content in those products, it would be providing that pull through.
0: So, we we had the sword. We had uh, a lot of uh, a lot of panic. Um, what has actually changed? What 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 do you think was the outcome from when it all um, all the all the media attention and uh, everyone stopped taking etc. What actually happened there? Do you think, Nick, in the market?
1: Well, my view, Rick, is that there hasn't actually been a crisis. It has been portrayed as a crisis, but I think it's just a shift in the market. And what has happened demonstrably is that uh, councils and and ratepayers in turn are now paying more for their curbside recycling. So that the material recovery facilities are charging more because they have to put more labour and time into sorting out the materials to get to the new specification. Correct. But, you know, the same or similar amounts of material are largely still moving through the system. I mean, last year, um, again, with respect to paper, the volumes that were shifted out of Australia were slightly down, a couple of percent down. But the price was actually higher than it had been for many years, particularly for some sorted grades of paper. Mm. So so the the industry and the, the recyclers were were getting more than they had been getting before on a slightly lower volume, but it cost them more To get to that grade to be able to sell it yeah so that's where the change has been and and i would argue you know it's a change within the existing paradigm it hasn't actually structurally changed anything
0: no it's a market adjustment and it's a fundamental market adjustment in the process but i think this is a classic example where um we have these waste levies across australia and those monies for every generator is paying for those levies. This is where we can get smarter in using those levies back into investment for industry to actually invest in the technologies to remove those high cost overheads, which then makes the system more efficient.
1: Yep, I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, I also think we need to look at the recycling industry as a recycling industry as a as an industry, not as an environmental activity. Mm. You know, I think um, the waste policy uh, and and approach is coming from an environmental lens where it needs to be an economic lens. It needs to be understood within the broader economy.
0: Well, I think people forget that waste management is about public health and and environmental amenity, the two, the two two connect together. And I think you're absolutely right where the fact that industry is not, they talk the industry, but the the, the talk doesn't match the walk uh, in many connections. And they don't see it as that business. We talk about the green jobs, but we don't actually ever elaborate on those sorts of things with the green jobs, et
1: cetera. Yes, And, and we focus on this end of pipe Better collection process, so we end up with this material being recovered. Yeah, but that doesn't actually provide the next step and the economic incentives to make that happen.
0: And I think it's what I've picked up. Certainly, is the confusion that that rhetoric is actually put into the the householder and to the punter in the street, and that again exacerbates the problem because everyone says, "Well, well this is going to the garbage, mm. and it's all going mm. to thing." So they just don't worry about the household improving a system that's broken or needs readjustment. They just actually exacerbate it, which then from the recycler has to do more work, more labour, more cost to get to a a higher grade. So it's just this circle of of challenge to the processing process. Um, So there was two examples about April of last year there was a thing in the industry called the Bundaberg Protocol, where we actually tried to make an adjustment and a system change. Have you got much of your head around that at all, and what we actually tried to do there? Do you think?
1: Oh, I do recall it was a you know really good uh, discussion to have a look at, at system wise what what could actually be changed, where was the problem, and and go into what you were just saying in terms of the contamination and having a problem uh, within the bin. Uh, You know, I I remember in particular glass and plastics were looked at to see what could be done to improve the quality of the material to make the recycling easier.
0: I'm going to be talking to uh, Bundaberg Council shortly um, because they did do something quite radical. They actually told the community to stop putting particular plastics in their recycling bin to to make the recycling facility more efficient so that the plastics they were pulling out actually were easier recoverable. And uh, the community got right behind it. In fact, their overall contamination rate fell and gave them a cleaner product, which kept those people in the Murph job, even though it was a tough gig. It took some adjustment in the community, but the community got behind it because they were, the, the, the council and the, the local government were honest with the community and said, this is what we need to do.
1: Yep.
0: And I think in, Bund- and I think in uh, Ipswich, they did the same with glass. They had a problem with the market. They took it out. They put it in a different system. So these are, these are real solutions where we're not thinking more laterally. I think we're trying to keep a, a broken system or a system that has got some dysfunction in it going. And if you keep putting uh, glue to the stone chips, the stone chips are eventually going to keep falling off, aren't they?
1: Mm, it doesn't change. And, and it is always in evolution. You know, we've seen the uh, commencement of the Queensland and New South Wales container deposit schemes in recent times as well, and they're fundamentally having an impact on curbside. Some of it's good. Um, you know, uh, we've seen in New South Wales that because the Murph operators can redeem the containers for deposits, that in some instances it's given them a bit more revenue. Um, it's created some problems on the other end because the quality of the glass that is left in the curbside now is even lower value. So that's causing some problems. But um, it really is a state of, of continuous uh, adaption to to the environment that's changing.
0: And this is the challenge with industry, in many of the cases, industry needs a stable environment. You can't keep changing policy just on the whim of something, activity, because you talk about the paper mill. You need long-term, you need supply chain. You mm. need to know where that material feedstock is coming to actually do it.
1: Mm.
0: Yep. So in, the, in a global system, we've had this shake-up. I mean, England's gone through a, the same pain we went through. Um, the volumes in, in, into Asia have changed, so the Indian market's um, tightened but it's got smarter, it's quality. Um, Vietnam's got smarter with its quality. Malaysia's got smarter. Indonesia's got smarter. Do you think the Australian um, system has really uh, grasped the opportunity um, to actually take this, this challenge head on? Uh,
1: that's very good question. I don't know. I think the jury's out. There's been a lot of talk, Rick, mm. and there are a lot of ideas around. And I think the opportunities that exist within Australia that because we are um, as, as advanced as we are and we have so much experience in recycling, we could potentially be you know, adding value to the recovered material, such as taking the plastics and actually um, processing them to a point where it's a virgin substitute and whether that is... Then made into a product in Australia, or whether you export that resin to another country, at that point wouldn't matter. You're value adding you, it. You're and, and there's there's potential to do similar things with with um, some steel products, and certainly with paper. So I think that's the opportunity that is being discussed, and we haven't yet seen the rubber hit the road, and that that start to happen, um, and. As you say, across Southeast Asia, which is our natural market for these recovered materials, the the market is tightening and and adapting quickly. And, you know, we've all seen in recent years in some Southeast Asian countries that they can respond very quickly when they decide to focus on industry activity. Um, And so the the issue for Australia may be that that if we take too long to adapt and to, to put some of these ideas into action, we might miss the boat.
0: So moving to a, a scenario where someone new wants to come into this industry um, and make these, ad, these abrasive changes that an, embrace change and actually get on with it, what would, you, you're a veteran of the industry many years looking back, what, what words, would advice would you give someone who's starting in this industry and, and looking at the challenges of recycling and the national sword and how they might take advantage of that?
1: Well, I would say be very cautious at the moment, honestly, Rick, um, because there is still a lot of change and we're still looking for some consistent leadership, both within the industry and I think from government as well. Mm. Um, so I think my, my, my view would be that uh, in the short term, we're still not entirely sure how it's going to pan out. But I could be sure that in the medium to longer term, it's going to look just the same unless we actually start to change some of the, the fundamentals and the structural uh, barriers that we've got. Um, and that's those things that I highlighted before around the way that curbside recycling is contracted and actually attracts investment and competition. Um, it's the way that we economically incentivize greater resource recovery and use of recyclet in products, um, you know what we used to call internalising the externalities, which you know
0: is <laughs> like valorisation.
1: It's valorisation. <laughs> it's a, it's a neat way of actually saying you know getting those environmental benefits uh, and other, Benefits that we talk about recycling delivering actually reflected in the product price.
0: Yeah, and I, I, I would concur on it. I think one of, the, uh, one of the great challenges we're going to be facing shortly, we haven't really seen it. We've seen the container deposit system in New South Wales, um, that's 12 months young now. Uh, Queensland is probably about five months into it. Western Australia is going to start with it. So, what we've actually done, we're the only jurisdiction globally that I can find where we've actually taken a very mature system. And we're actually now plucking items, select items out of that very um, mature system. The unknown in my mind is what is going to happen to all the material that doesn't have the containers on it? Because all we've taken is we've taken the quality material out of it. So we're actually leaving ourselves with 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 a harder menu of spaghetti to try and unravel, aren't we, really? Yeah. In well, long term, long term.
1: In the long term, that's right. I mean, paper will for the foreseeable future still be the major material in curbside, and that's not targeted by no. any of those kinds of things at the moment.
0: They've got a very high recycling rate up around this. You know, they're, they're performing very well, aren't they?
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's the plastics, as you say. You know, you're, you're targeting taking out the high-value plastics and the high-value aluminium and, and that kind of material. So the natural response would be that the cost of of curbside recycling will continue to climb, Mm. is my interpretation, so that for the householder and for the council, there's probably going to be increased pressure over time to pay more and more for that same activity, Um, which in many respects is fine as long as it's still cheaper than landfill um, Mm. and it's still getting a good environmental outcome. But it, it comes back to that point as well, that it should really be about recycling and not just about the collection and sorting of that material. So, as that basket of, of materials in the curbside bin change in value and become lower value, how are we going to continue to ensure that they're actually recycled?
0: And I think this is where the leadership in markets we've got to get very serious in actually starting to take it up and look at look at local markets, not just talk it. Because uh, um, you know, unless we've got some use for this material, a, a product is not a resource unless it's got a, an item behind it. Mm. And it's not about mass burn. It's not about throwing it away. We do want to get smarter with it. But I think it's that there are some fundamental system changes that are going to have to adjust to it mm. in the fullness of time. So in the looking forward, um, I agree with you. I think we're looking probably at that sort of um, stabilised more. It's going to be – there's going to have to be a system change of some sort that will be stable in some thing. What really intrigues me is the, everyone reflects back to Europe mm. um, and you – look at the materials that are coming out of the same factories in Korea, they're coming out of the same factories in China or what it is, the European packaging standards are so fundamentally different to ours and the importing. So the of, they've got legislation there which says, if you're going to bring material into my country, this is the form you bring in. And yet out of the same factory, we get all this packaging. I saw the most bizarre thing on a truck the other day. It was a plastic water tank, shrink-wrapped. And I'm just trying to <laughs> work out... <laughs>
1: What are you protecting? It what
0: are you protecting? <laughs> UV and other things. So right. um, I think, you know, this comes back to the policy setting nationally. We need that leadership, don't we, Nick? Uh,
1: I would agree. Yeah. I mean, packaging is uh, obviously um, the very high visibility materials in curbside or in, you know, litter or illegal disposal. Um, it's also obviously high volume. You know, so fast moving consumer goods and the packaging associated with them um, is important to to address and Europe has been very effective in that, you know, they've put very strong price signals in there as well as having very strong regulation around it. Um, You know, I would say that in Australia we have done pretty well in some respects um, under the the packaging covenant process that we've got, which has provided uh, an incentive and a very light touch approach. Um, But it it is perhaps reaching its limits. Mm. Um, because w- as you say, Rick, you know, we are now seeing such globalisation of, of production and movement of materials um, that there's no reason why we shouldn't be at the same standards as have been achieved in, in Europe. Oh, um,
0: absolutely, absolutely, that's And that was my point. I mean, yeah. why aren't we there? We, you know, we've got the same work and operating environment. Sure, scalability is different, but it's the same market. It's the same end use of the materials, the same marketing of the most materials.
1: Well, I, I would say because we don't have the, the financial incentives. You know that's what we're lacking. The, the EU directives and regulations put in place either a, an upfront advance to put disposal fee to make that recovery activity happen, um, or puts in place a you know significant threat of a penalty if if you don't get the right product out there in the first place. And that's what we don't have.
0: Well, I think product stewardship st- has a long, long, long way to go. I mean, the covenant was was good in its day, but it certainly I think now needs that refresh look without without any doubt. So if we looked at um, How do we re-energise and give the community that confidence of the recycling? I mean, what are the messages we need to make sure that we're sending out there into the media and everything now? Because I think we've got to stop this negativity um, that the world is going to come to an end with recycling, but we need to give some solutions, don't we?
1: We do. We do. And I've got to say, I'm heartened when I talk to people and look at some social media that a lot of people's response to the negative uh, reports and the, the crisis reports is to take more responsibility themselves and to look for better solutions. So I think it's all positive that we're educating people and raising awareness that um, it's not a simple solution and, and you, you need to put in some effort and thought into what the, you're doing and take some responsibility. So I, th- I think that's good. Um, I, I, I don't know, Rick, in terms of, uh, you know, any mass education or, or awareness campaign, whether – whether that's necessary, I think that the, um, the issues with respect to curbside and household recycling are going to continue to bump along and be problematic and, you know, there'll be good and bad stories, I think, continue to come out. Um, I think that uh, as an industry, what we probably need to think about is how do we communicate in a more mature manner to people who are now more educated about what they're doing. Um, so I don't have any, any specific, yeah. you know, uh, approach. No, that
0: wasn't led that way. It was just yeah. a case of, I think, um, I think, because we have to be, more, have to be actually showing this, um, those that are using the system, the system needs adjustment from time to time. And that's all these are. These are just steps, adjustments, and it, but it's not. And I think what we did, I think, is in a general term, we let the political rhetoric overtake the reality. Yep.
1: Um,
0: and that put a lot of fear and a lot of things into the system. And here we are, said, so 12 months down the track, looking back, um, we still haven't got the internalised markets. We're still talking about product reuse. Well, you know, I think it's time the rubber hit the road, both at a state and a federal level, that these state things actually have to now start walking the talk, not just c- talking it.
1: Yeah, no, no, that's a good point. And, and probably just highlights again that I don't, don't have a, a solution I- in mind, but that the... Um, the portrayal of everything as a crisis and the need for an immediate solution is not actually going to get us anywhere because some of the solutions are long term and we need to work on them over time, and then some of them are very much you know about people taking responsibility um, at different levels. So uh, the, the the tendency to portray things as a crisis is. Know, normal human behaviour.
0: <laughs> Especially um, when pol- politicians get involved.
1: <laughs> that's right, I think so. Um,
0: In our industry anyway.
1: But but certainly, you know, as I say, I'm heartened when I see that you know a lot of the responses are people looking for, well, what can I do differently? Mm. How can I get a better outcome from this?
0: So I think on that note, what well, we'll leave it there. But I, I do think, and I think we need to be leaving people saying, well, what can I do differently? And what, System change. Do I need to make this more sustainable, more efficient? So I think that's really where we landed after 12 months of National China sword Yeah. So Nick, thanks, mate. Patrick. very much. Pleasure. pleasure. Enjoy. We'll, we'll be back again, uh, and I'll talk to you. I think about product stewardship. I want to explore that a bit further.
1: Happy to.